This is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Jabot. Full valour is what one para is all about. British troops for Ukraine as Putin's ships stand off Cyprus. You have the RAF flying out of Akrotiri, the base in Cyprus, when you've got Russian ships refuelling just down the road. And why a hot date in the Danish army is a no-go area. The girl was uh, distant from the rest of the platoon because they saw her as his girlfriend and not, not as a co-worker. A Lance Corporal in the Parachute Regiment has been awarded the Victoria Cross. 27-year-old Lance Corporal Josh Leakey helped a wounded US Marine Corps captain while under intense enemy fire in Helmand two years ago. He then led a fight back against Taliban forces. We engaged the enemy from the high ground and then um, it was clear that the gun that was in the low ground needed to be brought into action as well. So went down the hill with some ammo and tried to engage the enemy from that position. Lance Corporal Leakey is the only living British soldier to receive a VC during the Afghan campaign. Two others have been awarded posthumously, but Lance Corporal Leakey is unfazed. I'm very humble and clearly I'm, I'm very proud of like, the regiment that I'm a part of, and that's really what I'm more proud of, is the fact that I'm a paratrooper. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here as usual and we're also joined by strategic analyst Eric Grove. Good to see you, both of you. Um, Christopher, let's just talk through exactly what Lance Corporal Leakey did. OK, we've got uh, a joint group, Americans, American Marines and the British group, 20, 20 soldiers. They're taking on a Taliban post and realising that that Taliban post is better armoured than they thought it was going to be, and they've got them in a very difficult position. There are two positions. You've got to go up a hill and you've got to go down a hill if you're going to do anything about it. In the meantime, the, what we would call the company commander, the American company commander, gets wounded. So off runs the last corporal, Lance Corporal, checks him out, then realises that if they're going to actually hit the Taliban, somebody has got to go down the hill and get at the other machine gun. That somebody he decides is going to be him because nobody else is going to do it. So he grabs some am ammunition, which he hadn't got, grabs some ammunition, goes down, takes out the, uh, uh, out the machine gun post, then realises you've got to get the other one as well. So he does that. Now, the US Marines and the other guys in this are so inspired at what he's doing um, that they join in on this thing. He then says, OK, now let's get the company commander, let's get this captain back to where we can call down an aircraft and get him medivac, casivac out. Uh, and the citation, according to part of it, says he was displaying gritty leadership well above the expected of his rank. Lance Corporal Leakey's actions single-handedly regained the initiative and prevented considerable loss of life. Listen, Lance Corporal Leakey is in one para, and I think if he took issue with anything that was said about him, well above the expected of his rank. Mm. Now, he would say, one para, we do this all the time. Mm. <laughs> uh, actually, um, Eric, uh, when he was interviewed about this uh, later, he was pointing to the badge on his Maroon Parachute Regiment beret, and he said, the only thing I was really scared of was letting this down, pointing to that cat badge. Um, and he says, that to me, that's why I joined, that's why I joined the army to be a paratrooper. That's quite considerable, isn't it, to put that above the Victoria Cross, or, or, or to, to not be people worried about that, than dying. Not for the Parachute Regiment. Uh, they have a tremendous 
sense of esprit de corps, which is one reason why they should be kept, and this idea of joining with the Royal Marines is a very silly idea. I mean, this is the positive side of the regimental system. People do things for the regiment. They do things for the honour of the regiment. And the paras have a strong tradition of... Because, well, they have to. I mean, if your tradition is dropping out of an aeroplane, it always struck me as the silliest way of going to war you could possibly imagine. But then you have to be extremely... To say. Extremely... Well, of course, I'm a, I'm a maritime person, basically. <laughs> and and the uh, ships, ships are much better. Um... And, I'm uh, glad you declared your interest earlier. Of on course, this absolutely. But no, I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously, this is a very admirable thing. It struck me looking at the citation that this was a classic VC because it's so like many of the other VCs. You know, he's a, he's exposed himself to danger. He's taken over and made the operation work, and he saved a wounded person. Don't forget Falklands War. You know, go up. Uh, you know, you're going to get killed. But you've got to take out a gun position. That's right. And that was the Potsmouth VC uh, yeah. that did that. The other thing is interesting that Eric says about, oh, well, you know, it's the regimental thing. You go into the Navy in your ship, the ship may be the rust bucket of the Navy, but it's the best ship in the mm. world, and you wouldn't, right. you'd fight anybody who says otherwise. It's but very important. Loyalty is very important in the armed forces. That's what makes yep. people fight, loyalty to the unit and We'll to be the talking ship. a little bit more yeah, about listen, the importance point, of the regiment later. He had a rel relative, a second cousin removed, who also won the VC mm. in the Second World War. Britain is sending 75 military trainers to Ukraine. It's a low-key force, so what can it do? Chairman of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Sir Richard Ottaway, has been talking to BFBS reporter James Hurst. I think it's an important step. Um, the whole world is well aware of the tensions that are building up in Ukraine. Um, it's not a NATO deployment. It is a British deployment in conjunction with the United States and Canada. And it's quite right that... Troops uh, are deployed there, British troops are deployed there, not to go onto the front line, but to give Britain the sort of uh, assessment that it needs to make and to provide the advice that the Ukrainians clearly need. What message do you think it sends to President Putin, particularly in the days after the Minsk agreement, which is supposed to be about de-escalation of the situation on the ground? I think the important thing with our behaviour to the Russians is to show that we are prepared to stand by and defend uh, our friends and our allies, but at the same time not to be provocative. I think what this is saying to President Putin, look... An agreement was signed here, and we're going to monitor it. We're going to watch it. We're going to give advice to the people who've got to defend that line. Uh, but at the same time, the relatively small deployment is not provocative, and it would not entitle Russia to, set, to respond by saying this is an act of aggression. The Prime Minister said the most effect the UK can have is economic, diplomatic, and particularly economic, through sanctions. That rather suggests to President Putin we're not really prepared to do anything. Well, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. We've never made a pledge to defend Ukraine. Logistically, for the West to defend it is, is not easy. Um, but it, it, it does say to Putin that we are not ignoring uh, Ukraine. The European Union has signed a, a friendship agreement with them and is working closely with them. These are our partners and at a time when Mr Putin's behaviour is becoming increasingly predict unpredictable I think it's very important that we actually uh, just make it quite clear that we're involved here, that, that we are watching the situation and we are prepared to help our friends. The Prime Minister was absolutely clear that if a NATO member were to be attacked by Russia, 
Article 5 of the NATO yes. treaty would be invoked that an attack on one is an attack on all would require a response by all. What, though, constitutes an attack? Well, exactly what is an Article 5 attack is a very, a very key question at the moment. Uh, I think, quite clearly, Russian troops coming over the border would be, it would be uh, an attack. Uh, question mark, if militias come over, as we've seen in Ukraine, if we have militias active in the Baltics, is that an attack? In my judgment, it is, if they're being sponsored by the Russians. Less clear, then, is when you get into cyber attack, espionage, um, attacks on intellectual property. Those are the areas, those are the grey areas where it makes it very difficult. But we are quite entitled to respond to help, say, the Baltic states um, defend themselves from cyber attacks, and that's what we'll do. While we're sending strong diplomatic messages and, 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 and hints of military messages to Russia... It is not isolated. Today, Cyprus uh, announces a deal for Russia to use its ports. There is a suggestion that, as well, it, Russia could be allowed to fly some military aid flights from Cypriot territory. Does Russia have enough friends in the world to, to neutralise the pressure we're trying to put on them? I have to say I'm surprised by this step. Um, it makes it harder for the EU, which Cyprus is a part, to have a united front in, in showing Russia that we are dissatisfied with the way they're behaving on the world stage at the moment. But Cyprus is not alone in this. Spain has also been providing refuelling facilities uh, to the Russian Navy, and quite clearly this is a situation we'll have to monitor. And, of course, Spain is a NATO ally. And Spain is a member of NATO, quite right. And, uh, and uh, that is why it is so important that we all hang together in this, because if we are seen to be fragmented, we are seen to be weaker. And your thoughts on what it means for British relations with Cyprus, where Britain has sovereign base areas for its military operations? Well, uh, it's a very important point. It's, it would seem a bit odd that you have the RAF flying out of Akrotiri, the base in Cyprus, when you've got Russian ships refuelling just down the road. This is a situation which has caught us all a bit by surprise and needs to be looked at more closely. That was the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Sir Richard Ottaway, talking to James Hurst. Uh, Eric Grove, uh, this Cyprus situation, a bit strange, isn't it? It's remarkable, yes, although when you consider the long-standing uh, Russian influence and inflow of Russian funds into Cyprus, it becomes a little less surprising. Uh, as Sir Richard said, it's a bit odd, isn't it, with sovereign base areas there and perhaps Russian ships in uh, in harbours and aircraft flying from other airfields. Um, it's a, it's an interesting sign of, of Putin's... Uh, attempt to break up the European Union. I mean, he's, got, he's very friendly with the, with the President of Hungary. He's trying to use the Euro crisis with Greece as a way of getting into Greece. This is very traditional. Back in the late 19th century, we had to deploy warships to try and contain Russian expansion in the Balkans. Mm. And now it's, it, it's back to the future. And it's, quite, and it's quite serious and potentially dangerous. Christopher, why are they docking in Cyprus? Um, one, they need to. Yes. Um, because it's for bunkers. They're going for bunkers, you know, oil, refuelling the uh, vessels. Um, but it's also rebuilding the whole influence in the Mediterranean. The way the Russians traditionally, or so the Soviet uh, uh, forces then, because there are four Russian, major Russian fleets, one of them was the Black Sea. And so you have to come out through the Bosphorus from Turkey to get into the Mediterranean. And it was a big deal in, uh, in, in, let's say, the 60s and 70s because they had a submarine base or a submarine loitering ground, actually, just off Hammamet on the North African coast. 
What they're doing here is merchant shipping. They're bunkering merchant ships, not warships. But the next stage, or so they believe, could be warships. I think they're talking about warships, actually, aren't they? Isn't it, isn't it sort of for anti-terrorist use and that kind of thing? They're, they're, they're patrol vessels. Now, the second part of this is two weeks ago, President Putin went to Egypt, and Egypt treated him as an absolute hero. Because? Um, because he, he, he's starting to supply aid as well. Now, Egypt is the second biggest recipient of American aid, mm. and America's trying to tie up the Russians with it's, sanctions. I mean, now, it's just one small thing. The next place the Russians want into is, is into Alexandria. Mm. Absolutely, as they were ships. in the past, as they were in the past. And, 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 I, and I read today that there's sort of rival sort of NATO and Russian exercises going on the either side of the Estonian border, a bit of muscle flexing there. Yeah, but the next bit of muscle, 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 muscle flexing is actually going to come from Putin, and tomorrow Putin will announce a complete revamp of all the gas supplies. Uh, uh, because he's threatening to cut it off, isn't he, well, to Kiev? He, well, he's, he's saying you've got to have payment before you actually get the gas. But it's not just gas in, in Kiev. It's right across Western Europe. Mm. And it's, that's when Western Europe is most vulnerable. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, could a new Sikh regiment in the British Army become a reality? And women on the Danish front line, but is first name terms going too far? This is BFBS. Sit rep. The former Foreign Secretary William Hague is stepping down from politics at the general election after 26 years as an MP. But before he goes, he's decided to wade into the debate on defence funding. Speaking to the Financial Times, he's warned that Britain must maintain a powerful military intelligence and diplomatic presence to deal with new threats. Uh, Christopher, what, what's he been saying apart from that? First thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, first thing is that uh, Haig is a big beast in politics. He may be on his way out, but the most important thing is that Cameron has to listen to him because the rest of the party will listen. He's no longer Foreign Secretary, he's leader of the House of Commons. <clears throat> Have a slurp of tea. Tea, <laughs> short tea. <laughs> uh, Eric. Well, I mean, he's been part of a government, of course, which has been cutting defence rather more than any previous government has done. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the the record since the SDSR, I mean, doing away with carrier strike, doing away with the Harriers, doing away with maritime patrol aircraft, you name it. And it's not just the new threats, it's the old threats. I mean, mm -hmm. Putin is a, an old-style old Russian threat. And when you look <coughs> at the state of our forces, I sometimes think that in, that in historical terms, in the threat terms, we're at 1938 and in armed forces terms were at 1931. Celebrity okay. later, Christopher. Okay, well, speak now. Okay, I'll speak. I shall now speak. Um, <laughs> Haig has said, um, he's joined the debate particularly over whether Britain should continue to have a 2% increase in its defence spending. Mm -hmm. At the moment... Obligation as a NATO ally. Or uh, yeah, there are only four mm -hmm. NATO countries that are actually doing this. Mm -hmm. What Haig has said today is that we ought to have not just 2%, but at least 2%. Now, what the Treasury is uh, hoping to get is a cut, a further cut, that will take it down to a 1.88. Now, this is just arithmetic, but it makes a huge difference. And the, and the example of that huge difference is that last week, the Chief of the General Staff was saying, I can do what I'm being asked to do with the money I've got. What he didn't say was if I don't get the money I've got, I can't do a third of it. Mm. And that is the debate which Haig has uh, got into. And this is one of his last swipes, really, uh, at, at the government. The government of Mr Cameron, and it was Mr Cameron who kicked him out of the Foreign Office, and it was the job he loved. 
To think in terms of defence cuts in the current situation is, as they say, the very midsummer of madness. It mm. really is. We have the we have the problem with Putin, and I gather the MOD is actually that's now its primary thought. Actually, what do we do about Putin? There's Islamic State. There's a whole range of threats. We need more, not less. Mm. And in fact, uh, I think there's a very good argument for increasing defence expenditure. But that, of course, would give the Treasury the screaming abdomen. The Hague's punchline on this, he says, as his experience of the Foreign Office and also the party uh, political uh, advisers that he's still got. He uses this phrase, the world is systematically less stable. This is the wrong time to even talk about cutting your defence. It, it's nice to agree with him for once, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hold that thought. That's Write it with down. Me, Make not, a not with me, not yeah. with Mr. No, Haig. No, 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 Mr. Haig, actually. Mr. Haig, yes, actually. Yes. Um, the Washington Post has revealed the true identity of Jihadi Don, John. He's Mohammed Mwazi from West London. It's not been confirmed by the police, but Christopher, um, what do you make of all of this? I mean, the first thing is why, why, relieve it, uh, uh, why, why say it so, reveal it at all now? And also, is there's the intriguing part about is, is give us the evidence that you're right about this. How long have you known? And what is the point of actually sort of saying this is who the guy is? Now, the point, uh, as far as the Americans are concerned, if you sort of say, I, I, I name you, you are showing how that you've got behind the system how that they cannot hide under identities and masks, etc. Thing and is, that though, is part of psychological does, it much, does it make much difference in terms of this person ever being caught? No, this guy's got a knife and he will use it again if necessary. He doesn't mind, he doesn't mind if he takes the, uh, the uh, that's the crude way of putting it. But the other thing is, we know who you are, therefore is always the suggestion, we know where you are. And one of the success stories of the Americans, of the CIA, is sending in drone attacks to take out the leadership. And that's why people, for example, not in Syria, but in Iraq at the moment, are saying that IS is losing ground in Iraq because the Americans' intelligence system is gradually taking out the leadership. Eric. Yes, I mean, I, th I think it's true. I think IS is on the back foot. I think that's one reason they've been doing some of the things they have been doing. I think they're getting rather... Is it all about what happens in Mosul? Is that, is that what going to be a big decider for well, IS? Well, obviously, obviously it's important. As it's its capital. I mean, yes, exactly. Iraq. I mean, the thing about IS is it's not like al-Qaeda. It, it, it is not a traditional terrorist organisation. They are trying to set up a state. And this actually makes them vulnerable to conventional military power. I see it as part of this general trend towards going back to bad old-fashioned interstate conflict rather than war you know, wars among the people, etc. And I think they are vulnerable, as Chris says, to to uh, to uh, uh, to drone attacks, to airstrikes. They have an infrastructure that can be attacked. And I think that the the signs are. I mean, there have been some successes for the Iraqi armed forces. The Kurds have been having some success. And I think there there is hope there. It's interesting that the uh, CIA had leaked this. And they leaked it to the Washington Post, and the Washington Post has been running a "We Can Reveal" how type do you know stuff that? for about because I do know that. Because we've got <laughs> how, how do you know that, Christopher? Okay, well, don't ask. Washington did, don't did ask. Did you leak it to the Washington Post? <laughs> <laughs> but what's, what's interesting is the CIA, the CIA desk that's been following this for some time, and they've known who he was, and therefore they can they can actually say we identify where he is and the territory, and we're back to this idea. Therefore, matey, you are vulnerable. What is interesting is that the the, the CIA report on him. That was given to the post said that he comes from a west of, uh, from a, an Ealing family in mm -hmm. West London, mm -hmm. but a very affluent family. And then they go on in, in they, they go in on their report, which the Washington Post hasn't carried all of it, to say that there is a, a, an example of looking the way that people are radicalised, uh, who are not sort of you know in, on Skid Row. That's right. These are very middle class, 
well-educated people. Now, we always seem to know that. That's what we hear all the time. But the point is, we come back to the question that others ask, you know, well, how do you stop them going in mm. the first place? Now, while the British government awaits another review on whether to allow females in the frontline direct combat roles, in Denmark, women have been allowed to serve alongside men in combat since 1988. Emma Nelson has been finding out from recruits, commanders and soldiers if Danish equality has helped or hindered the effectiveness of their armed forces. A platoon's on its first live-firing exercise in North Denmark. It's a defining part of close combat. There's a mix of both men and women. Private Sabrina Rahuga is the only girl in her unit. You got your mates and uh, at the end of the day you, you make it, you get it done and ordinary people would exactly never do something like we do. Private Brian Christensen has led platoons in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Whenever we're on the ground, everybody p- performs the same. It doesn't matter whether they're male or female soldiers. They add an extra dimension to the unit. A lot of the lads, they bring in the, the muscles and so on. They're the female soldiers. They have their, their nursing thing in them. Captain Isabella Kofiel is one of the Danish Army's best gunners. Her patience has been highlighted as a particularly female quality. We help bring a bit of perspective to some of the young boys. Because for them it's all just exciting and they almost sometimes feels like they think it's a game and not actually reality. But sometimes you hit a nerve when you start talking about all the other things that the boys aren't thinking about. At the beginning of the year, the physical requirements for men and women in combat roles were made the same. So one of the tests soldiers like Lance Corporal Maddie Peterson has to pass now is the so-called death lift of 80 kilos. She thinks her body doesn't suffer any more in the long term than her male colleagues will. I don't think there's coming a long-term effect if you're preparing your body to do the job. So if you're trained properly, then your body can hold as long as a guy. Do you ever find yourself having to compare yourself with with guys? Yeah, all the time. But when you put a group of young men and women together in 50 degree heat in combat in Afghanistan, things are going to happen. Over Constable Sarah Iverson says she's seen colleagues in a relationship and it's changed the platoon. The girl was uh, distant from the rest of the platoon because they saw her as his girlfriend and not, not as a co-worker. When they broke up, she was she had a tr- she had troubles with uh, communicating with the rest of the platoon because they didn't really know her, they didn't know who she was and they hadn't talked to her. So how's it dealt with? Captain Runa Kaiser has also led platoons in Afghanistan. There's a high chance of this happening. I talked to the uh, soldiers about it and saying, I would like you to refrain from having any sexual relations with anyone from your own unit because it creates bad tension at some point. But if it happens anyway, be aware of it. This approach to leadership has been described as being particularly Danish. But how does society in general deal with such equality? Michael Booth is a British journalist living in Copenhagen. The Danish male has become a little bit emasculated in a sense. They maybe lack a bit of that chivalry. When you have a very, very gender-equal society, some of those things kind of fall by the wayside. Close combat exposes an individual, a team and a whole organisation to stress. And the test of any military is how well it copes with this. The Danish argue that the best approach is to fight, to keep on fighting and to make room for everyone. That was BFBS reporter Emma Nelson reporting from Denmark. Uh, Christopher, um, does sound like they've got it all sorted over there. Well, they have, except I, I like the idea that they, they've got a platoon 
and then you see a, a couple of them pair off. And it's not the, uh, the government said, no, 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 you mustn't do that. It's the other guys in the platoon and say, hang on, we don't like this. Before, we were all in the, you know, all separate people in this platoon. Mm. Suddenly, they're mates. I'm not sure we can have that. I tell you what is important, uh, because there are all sorts of stories about women on the front line. The British have women on the front line. The Israelis most certainly do, the Australians do, the New Zealanders do. Not direct and the, and combat, the ca- though, is and in the such as a sort of official no, role, it isn't, though, is it? No, well, they, it, they might have to. But it's yeah. very hard to separate it. Yes. very hard to separate it. There, there are women in frontline situations. Indeed. And, and, and I think that I personally don't think there's any reason why women should not be in infantry units or armoured vehicles or whatever, because they are already in frontline combat. The key to this is don't have sexual relationships and that can cover men as well as women I mean this is a discipline issue anyway isn't it really in the way that people it is, are commanded but, yeah, but don't forget I mean, this is the whole thing you know you've got somebody who's going around uh, and looking for IEDs and it's a woman yes. and that's frontline stuff there's somebody who is medi in the medics doing the same thing and look at the the present commander of the typhoon squadron in so in cyprus is a woman is this a little bit of a red herring then i mean is it is the status quo pretty much as it should be anyway it's the end it? well i think we're coming to the end of a transitional period i remember being told in the 1960s by the lady the ch- the marvelous lady who brought the wrens to dartmouth in 1976 that in fact uh, you know the wrens always had to remain separate they could never go to sea etc she was the director wrens who took the wrens to sea mm. it's a long-term trend over the last be- few decades. And before that, if a wren got, uh, got pregnant, she had, had to, to leave the, had to leave the, the service, wrens. Yes. And it was only when they came out of the Naval Discipline Act that didn't really matter. Mm. Right, earlier we were talking about the importance of different regiments. We were talking about the Parachute Regiment. Uh, the Chief of General Staff, Nicholas Carter, has said he wants to increase the number of ethnic minorities in the British Army. He's talked of a 25% volume of black and Asian troops. And there's now a discussion in the MOD about raising a Sikh regiment. Uh, we're going to be talking to Tom Tugendhat in a moment, who has served as the military assistant to the Chief of Defence Staff, David Richards, now Lord Richards. Uh, but Christopher, uh, a Sikh regiment, is it a possibility? Well, there was, have been. It came uh, up in defence questions yeah, this week, I mean, didn't we've it? got the Gurkhas, which is quite a separate thing. And it's one of those things you think, well, yes, that's what we'll do. But the point is, it, it, it sounds as if um, we're not... We're in great danger of saying that the army, especially, is no longer a democracy. The fact that you've got to put certain types, like Sikhs, that you couldn't put Sikhs along with, let's say, another ethnic minority in the same regiment. But you've only got to look, for example, at the, uh, at the Black Watch. Mm. A, a lot of the other ranks in the Black Watch are from Fiji. Mm. So it's not, it's not suddenly creating... Tom, Tom Tugendhat, what's your view on this? Well, I think, I think that Sikhs have had a very proud and noble tradition serving the crown and that recognising it uh, by bringing Sikhs together into a cohesive unit is, is a, a, an honourable thing to do. In the same way as the Scots Guards include people from London and, and the Yorkshire Regiment includes people from uh, Northern Ireland and Cornwall who feel an affinity towards Yorkshire, I don't think that this should in any way be an exclusive uh, unit, but it would be one that draws its cultural heritage from something that uh, we're very proud of. So um, you, you've, you've written and spoken about the, the input that the, the Gurkhas have had in Afghanistan and the value they had. Could Sikhs have a similar kind of position? Sikhs certainly could have a similar kind of position, but I mean, you'll note that I don't just say Gurkhas and Sikhs. I also say uh, Muslims and Hindus have also had a very important uh, role in reaching out to other groups uh, that the United Kingdom uh, has served alongside or in whose countries we've operated. Because, of course, the British Armed Forces reflects the whole of the United Kingdom. 
and in that we should draw from the wealth of experience of the entire population. To what extent, though, do you think actually creating a battalion itself could suggest a kind of failure of cultural integration within the armed forces? I, I don't think that's true at all. In, in, in the same way as I don't think that having the Scots Guard suggests that I'm pro uh, independence for Scotland. I don't think that's, you know, that's, I'm afraid I think that's a, a little far fetched. You know, having proud local regional traditions banded together in regiments to create that cohesive fighting spirit is something that has made the British Army great for several hundred years. The regimental tradition is something that really makes us the envy of many other countries, in fact I'd say the whole world. And forming new regiments based on new identities uh, in the British Army, as we know there were Sikh regiments in the Indian Army before, I don't think is uh, in any way a breakdown of cultural uh, homogeneity. It's what it is, is a recognition that many, many different cultures mm. play their part in the patchwork that is the British Armed Forces. All right, Tom Tugendhat, thank you very much for your time today. And just before we go this week, uh, Chris, we're looking ahead to next week. There's a big talk on leadership, isn't there? Big talk on leadership, the RUSI. And it's the leadership and necessarily sometimes the failure of leadership um, during the Iraq and during the Afghan, uh, the recent Afghan uh, uh, operations. And that's particularly important. The fact that you're going to have to have this discussion. There's something else going on, and that is the Prime Minister of Israel is going to tell the American Congress that the Americans are buttering up to the Iranians, and if they do, they, Israel, will do something about it. That's the most important speech of next week. Eric, ten seconds to tell me what you're looking out for next week. Um, what Putin will do next, I think, mm. and what's going to happen in Ukraine. I think there is. Th this is one of the most serious crises of my lifetime, actually, because unlike in the Cold War, we don't know exactly what the rules are. Things right. are very dangerous indeed. Professor Eric Grove, Christopher Lee, thank you very much. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website or download the podcast from iTunes. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Jobo, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. News, news, sport, sport, and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.